We are actually going to begin Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. It should be found on page 116 um, in your pew Bibles. And this is a passage that should be somewhat familiar to you. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. Uh, this is when the people have come out of slavery in Egypt. They've crossed through the Red Sea. They've come to Mount Sinai. And then God spoke all these words. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made, and we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would uh, help us to hear it, help us to understand it. But most importantly, we pray that it would help us to be transformed by, the, by your word and by your spirit, that you would be uh, cleaning us out of the junk in our lives, that you would be changing us from the inside out more and more into the people that you created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Turning then to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, which can be found on page... Uh, 1770 in your pew Bibles. Paul writing the church in Corinth says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are in our series in the book of John, and last week we looked at one of the signs uh, that Jesus gave to show who he is. And, um, and this week we get actually the seventh sign, so they don't quite come in order, uh, but people ask him for a sign, he tells them what it's going to be, and it's a confusing one, and they don't understand it until a long time later. And it actually is the last of the signs to be given. So we'll see that in a bit. But before we get there, um, we get a, an odd story about Jesus where um, he seems angry. Have any of you ever been angry? Come on. <laughs> have you ever been angry? All right, I guess it's just me. Um, <laughs> but this is a story that is uh, because of our relationship or maybe even addiction to anger. Um, when we come across the story of Jesus clearing out the temple and flipping over tables and making a whip and all that, uh, some people have a hard time with this story because for them, it's like, no, Jesus would never do such a thing. That's not the Jesus that I know. Um. And so they have a hard time with this one. What do you do with that? On the other hand, you have people who don't have a hard time with this story at all. They have a hard time with most of the rest of the stories about Jesus. Because they're like, no, this is what he's supposed to be like. I mean, like Peter, when he was following Jesus around, was like, yes, do more of that, Jesus. <laughs> you go around and tearing things up and flipping things over and driving people away. They've got it coming after all, right? And so wherever we are, on that, we're going to take the story as it is. This is John chapter 2, verses uh, 13 through 25. We will see what it tells us about, uh, about Jesus and also about ourselves. Here we go. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of them from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples return, remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. All right. There's a lot going on here, obviously, 
Uh, we'll take it as it comes. When Jesus comes to the temple, it's Passover time. It says, <clears throat> so we're in the spring, so this is a spring cleaning passage. But he comes to uh, Jerusalem at Passover time. And it says, in the temple, of course, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And my guess is, if we were in that same position, if we had come just like everybody else had been coming to Jerusalem at Passover time, and you came and you found that situation, your instinct would not be to make a whip out of cords and start driving people out and flipping over tables. You'd just be like, oh, I guess that's how things are done here, right? And yet, you don't see Jesus doing this other places. You don't see him uh, flipping over tables other places. You don't see this kind of uh, reaction. But here, in this place, in this time, he sees this going on, and this is what he does. So what are we missing? Why is it that we wouldn't be inclined to start flipping things over, and Jesus is? Hmm. Well, I think partly we need to understand what the situation is there uh, better than we probably do currently. What is happening at Passover is this is one of the three festivals uh, during the year where people would travel from wherever you lived. And if you could, you need to be in Jerusalem for this, uh, this time and this festival. And so people are coming from all over Israel, and they're coming to Jerusalem to, uh, to celebrate, but especially to the temple to offer sacrifices. But if you're coming from a long way away, it's not easy to transport your animals for sacrifice from wherever it is you're living all the way to Jerusalem. This is a hilly country, and you've got to go you know, all the way up to Jerusalem. It's difficult. And so instead, they say, well, don't worry about that. You leave your animals at home. You just you bring us money, and uh, from wherever you are, we'll exchange the money so that you can have the, the right money for the temple tax, that sort of thing, and you'll have the right money for also uh, you can purchase animals for sacrifice right here so you don't have to haul them in. Isn't that convenient? This is a service we're providing. Just make it easy. Make it easy for everybody to worship God. Inclination we have today as well. And, uh, and so people come and they aren't inclined to flip over tables because this is great. We don't have to bring our animals from home, and we can come, and we can exchange our money here. And sure, the prices may be ridiculously marked up, but it's a convenience charge, right? And so we pay the money, we get the animals, we make the sacrifice. All is well. Everybody's happy. It's a win-win all the way around. But Jesus doesn't see it that way. He doesn't see it as a win-win all the way around. In fact, he sees something very different. When he comes on this scene, what he sees is a, um, is something that is to be holy, being used in a way that is not holy. Now, if you read in Matthew and Luke, where, uh, Mark, where you have uh, Jesus coming in and clearing the temple again uh, at the end of his ministry, uh, he actually says, my father's house is to be a house of, is to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so there it does seem that the, uh, the take on it is more that he's saying what you are doing is a wrong thing to do in general, and especially here. 
But here in John, at the very beginning, it's not that what they're doing is necessarily a wrong thing, but where they're doing it, the way they're doing it, is not acceptable. It is not appropriate. And I think part of that is the making it easy for people to worship God instead of the way he's prescribed. And this is something we're always inclined to do, and this is one of the things that happened way earlier on. Uh, I don't know if you recall this. There was a time when Israel was going through a split, and somebody said, you know what? I don't see why people need to travel all the way down to Jerusalem. Actually, they always go up to Jerusalem or whatever. South to Jerusalem uh, in order to worship God at the temple. We'll just build an altar here. And we'll put a gold calf on it. You can come worship God. Not a problem. It's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> no, you don't do that. No, you don't do that. But the idea was this will make it easier for people to worship God. And typically we're convenience lovers. And so if you make it easier, sure, that'll be helpful. But God repeatedly says making it easier is not the same thing as making it better. And I don't know if you've ever uh, seen the infomercials on TV for exercise equipment, but it always cracks me up that they'll have these exercise equipment infomercials, and the whole idea of it is you're going to get in this amazing, great shape, and, you know, it's not going to be like all those times you tried it before and it was so hard. Now we've made it easy. And you're like, well, if it's easy, it's probably not going to work because <laughs> that is how you get in shape is by actually exerting the muscles, and then it's, that's what... Yeah, that's what helps. And if you're not exerting the muscles, it's not going to get in shape. And that is, I think, a part of why God has prescribed things the way he did. And so he said, you, you bring your animal and you come to the temple. And that the travel and the journey is a part of the sacrifice. And the bringing the animal all the way up the hill, like every step along the way, you're thinking about what's going on. If you no longer have to bring the animal, because now they've made it easy, and all you have to bring is you know, a pouch full of coins— you're not thinking about it all the time. And the journey no longer becomes a part of the sacrifice. And now it's become easy. It's become convenient. But it's become less worship. I think that is part of the problem. But I think there's another part of the problem, which is this idea of holiness. That this was a sacred space. This was a place that had been set aside for a particular purpose. And it wasn't being used that way. It was actually being used for something that should be done. If you're going to do that at all, it should be done somewhere else. And in fact, it had been done somewhere else for a while, and it just kept creeping in until finally it was in the court of the Gentiles, in the temple itself. And Jesus comes into the temple, and he sees that the temple courts themselves are no longer a place for worship, but a place for buying and selling and trade. He says, no. Not here. And again, I don't think that in this particular case, he's saying you shouldn't do those things at all anywhere, but definitely not here. Like whether or not you should be doing them is, is irrelevant at this point. He's saying not here, not in this place. This place is different. This place is separate. This place has been set aside for a purpose. In the same way that it, reading in the Ten Commandments and you saw the Sabbath was one of those that it actually spends a bit of time on. And so if you're reading through the list of commandments, you might be confused at which ones get more time than others. You would think if you were giving the list of commandments, you might spend more time on the don't murder. Like, maybe that's a big one. They're all big ones. 
But it's actually the Sabbath. We get a long description of how you're to observe the Sabbath and keep it holy, and here's why and all this. And the way that that worked out is uh, there were things that you could do on other days of the week, but you couldn't do them on the Sabbath because the Sabbath was to be holy. In other words, it was different. It was set aside. It was a unique day among all the days of the week. And so it wasn't a problem to cook your food. You could cook your food six days of the week, but not on the Sabbath. It wasn't a problem to go traveling here and there, wherever else. You could do that whenever you wanted, except on the Sabbath. Not there. Not then. That day was to be holy. And that is what's going on with this temple situation, is the temple was a space that had been set aside for a particular purpose. Um, I've actually heard somebody talk about it this way, saying, you know, we do this in our own homes, where we have the different spaces set aside for different activities. And so you would not do in your kitchen the things you do in your bathroom. <laughs> and there's a reason for that. <laughs> there's a hygiene reason for that, but it, that's the idea, is that the space for the kitchen has been set aside for kitchen activities, and the space for the bathroom has been set aside for bathroom activities. These have been set aside as unique spaces for different purposes. And so when Jesus comes to the temple, which has been established and set up as this unique space set aside for a unique purpose, then to bring in the things from everywhere else and just do those in the temple as though it's just the same as everywhere else is inappropriate. It is a violation of that space, and it desecrates the holiness of the space. And so when Jesus comes in, what does he do? He doesn't look around and say, oh, I guess that's how they do it here. He says, this is not how it is supposed to be. This is to be a holy place, and so all of the things that have been brought in that are making it less than holy need to go. And so he makes this, you know, whip cord thing. Um, and for those of you who are concerned about the violence of the act, this is not a, a terribly threatening kind of a whip. <laughs> uh, but it's something to get the attention. And actually, I saw one commentator pointed out that the, the people who were in there doing the buying and selling, apparently their consciences, like they already knew this was not appropriate. They're kind of in there, as long as nobody says anything, we're going to try to do this. But they know it's not okay. And the way that you know that is as soon as Jesus starts what he's doing, they get out of there. It's like, oh no, we've been caught. That kind of an attitude. It's like the cockroaches when you flip the light on. They scurry. (laughs) It's not those who are like, no, what we're doing is right. Who do you think you are? You can't be doing it. They get out of there. Now, immediately after this, there's the who do you think you are to be the one to do this? I mean, okay, yes, we're in the wrong, but still, hey, you can't be the one telling us this. Who do you think you are? You have to give us some sign to be able to say that you've got this kind of authority. And what is the sign he gives them? This is the one I said is the seventh sign, even though it's mentioned here. It's destroy this temple. Now I'll rebuild it in three days. And of course, this is a classic. What happens throughout the whole book of John is you have uh, Jesus saying things and people just completely missing them. <laughs> Not understanding at all what he's talking about until later. And people do. 
And so uh, right here he says, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. And they say it's taken 46 years to build this temple. This is a temple built by Herod the Great. Magnificent structure, huge courts, way bigger than uh, what you'd seen even in Solomon's time. You've got this amazing temple, 46 years to build. And Jesus says this, like, this guy's a crazy man. Except that he's talking about his own body, as John tells us. That he's talking about his body as a temple. Well, that's odd. Why is he talking about his body as a temple? Think about what the temple is. This space that is holy, that is set apart as a place actually to be the meeting place between heaven and earth, where people and God are united. This is why it was inappropriate to have all the marketplace things in that space. But now Jesus says his own body is this space where heaven and earth meet, where people and God are united. It happens in him. then it says that there were some uh, verse 23 now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people he did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person (laughs) there are a couple things going on here one it's kind of hard to see behind the way that English has to be translated here, but the same word, uh, root, is being used when it says that he, um, that many people believed in his name and that Jesus would not entrust himself to them. That's the same word. And we have a hard time saying it like that in English, but basically it would be the idea of um, that many people trusted in his name, but he would not entrust them, him to them. And so there's that play on words. They're trusting him, he's not going to trust them. And why isn't he going to entrust himself to them? This is where it gets a little uncomfortable. He's not going to entrust himself to them because he knows them. Throughout the Bible, God is the one who knows what's in the human heart, who knows better than we know ourselves. And you'll see this play out, actually, over the next uh, several chapters as Jesus encounters individuals that Jesus is the one who knows people better than they know themselves, who knows the issues in their own hearts. And it says that it's for this reason he's not going to entrust himself to them because he knows. He knows what's in their hearts. And if we know our own hearts, then we go, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) For him not to entrust himself to us, that he is the one who can be trusted and we are those who can't. Because he is the one He is the one who can do the cleaning. And we are the ones who need to be clean. Here's the other part of this. When Jesus spoke of his own body as the temple, he is the one who's holy, as we mentioned. But as you read on through the New Testament, you know who else gets talked about as a temple? Us. Over and over again. Paul talks about it. Peter talks about it. It's in multiple letters that are written of 
of the church now, us, the people, as a part of Jesus' body. And because we are a part of him, we are temples. We are the places now where heaven and earth meet. We are the places where uh, God and people come together. It's through people who are united to Jesus. But one of the things that means is that we have been set, a, set apart and set aside as holy and for a unique purpose. And so there are things that might be completely appropriate for other people to do that it's not okay for us to do. And there might be things that we used to do that it's not okay for us to do anymore. Because we are those who have been set apart as the temple of God. Now, if you'll read through the letters, this is typically how this comes through, is uh, you have places where it says you've you got to get rid of these things. You've got to get rid of these things that are defiling you as the temple. Just like how Jesus was cleaning out the money changers here. And instead, you need to be filled with the things that contribute to the purpose for which you have been created, for which you have been called, for which you have been set apart as unique and as the temple united with Jesus. And we're going to see next week that what this looks like actually looks like an entirely different life. And how this happens is not by us trying really, really hard. But it happens through the Word, through the Spirit. So for this week, the challenge is just this. One, look to Jesus to see who he is and how he is different. How he is different from anyone else who's ever lived. The way that he says, my Father's house. <laughs> Claiming that unique uh, relationship with the Father. But also the way in which he can be trusted differently than anybody else can be trusted, even ourselves, even our own hearts. But then third is looking at the areas in our lives that do not match with what it means to be called as a holy people, set apart for a purpose of bringing the good news of Jesus into a world that needs this good news, of bringing the healing of Jesus into the brokenness of the world, of bringing the wholeness, the shalom, the wellness and peace of God into a world full of strife and anxiety and hatred and bitterness and anger and rage. Where do we need to be cleaned out? That's what we look at this week. See this week that Jesus is the one to do that. We'll look next week at what that looks like more fully. Um, one other thing as it relates to anger. And that is, uh, as I mentioned at the very beginning, that we see Jesus seemingly pretty upset here. I hope at this point we say, yeah, that's right. Uh, he should have been upset. <laughs> Everybody should have been upset, but he, he was. Um, but what do we do with that? And one of the issues here is that 
we've been looking at the book of Jonah on Wednesday nights, and it ends with God asking Jonah a question multiple times. Is it right for you to be angry about this or that? Is it right for you to be angry? And that is a question we ask about Jesus here. Was it right for him to be angry? Yes, it was. One of the problems we have is typically in our anger. I asked at the beginning, have you ever been angry before? (laughs) Typically, when we're angry, we always think we're right to be angry. That's why we're angry, (laughs) right? And yet, um, we're not always right to be angry. In fact, a lot of times, given some time, you look back on that, and there's sort of this, ugh, I wish I had not done what I did (laughs) when I was angry. And so there's this sense that uh, Paul writes later, you know, in your, you know, be angry, but don't sin. Or in your anger, do not sin. And so there is a way to be angry that's okay. Unfortunately, we generally miss that. And we generally think it's okay to be angry when it's not. And that's, again, where Jesus is the one who can be trusted, where we are not. Um, and so anger in and of itself, is uh, it's kind of like a weapon. If we're in the right hands, that can be a good thing. And in the wrong hands, that can be a really bad thing. And the problem with anger is, with Jesus, it's in the right hands. And for us, it's usually in the wrong hands. And so that's one, one area for us to, uh, to kind of check ourselves this week as we look at this. Um, as we approach the table, though, I want us to be mindful of the temple itself, of ourselves as the temple, the cleaning that needs to take place, but also of Jesus as the temple, as the one who is holy and who has died and raised again to invite us in, to be a part of that holy temple, to see that as a good thing, and to see that as there are other things that aren't appropriate, that as painful as it might be to let those go, it is a life-giving thing to let those go. And he is the one who came to bring life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.